These are these verses here are my favorite in the whole of the Bible. My heart resonates every time I read them. Only the devil can get tired of these verses, I think, that God justifies the ungodly. And so let's all stand for the reading of God's word. And I will read from Romans 4, verses 1 to 5, and then we'll pray. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that through these words, these words now, through your gospel truths, that you would speak to us. We pray this very night through the hearing of this word, that you would justify an ungodly sinner in here. Through your gospel, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Edify believers through this sermon. Build us up to have greater assurance and hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, the first thing that it is good to do, at least in my mind, this is what I do when I read scripture, when you jump into a text like this, is to try and understand why Paul is saying what he is saying here. If we can begin to understand why Paul brings up these examples here of how Abraham was justified in our text, and then also David, if we can understand why he is saying this and try to follow the author's chain of thought, then I think we can better, much better understand what he's getting at here in these verses and draw application from it. And so to quickly give you a brief overview of what has been said in the preceding three chapters, if you look with me in chapter 1, verse 16... The Apostle Paul states here, I'm reading from the ESV, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word gospel means the good news. The good news proclaimed. The good news in this case of what God has done to save people through Jesus Christ his son. For it is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God. The word power means the ability to act or produce an effect. The gospel message, this good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, is God's means by which he produces, by which he brings about the effect, verse 16 continues, of salvation. The word salvation means saves or rescues. God rescues people. He saves people through the means of this gospel message, of this good news of Jesus Christ. So, what does this gospel, this good news, save people from? Well, verse 18, from the wrath of God. The gospel message is the means 
by which God is appointed to save people from his wrath, from hell, that is, from his judgment. And the last part of verse 16 there tells us that this gospel, God's appointed way of salvation, is for all people, Jew and Greek, which means Jew and non-Jew. No matter what background you are from, if you are going to be saved from God's wrath, then it is by and through this gospel message. And also in verse 17, of, of course, Paul expands much more on this uh, later, later. But here in verse 17, he begins to tell us how this gospel message saves us. For in it, in the gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed. In order to get to heaven, in order to be reconciled to God, we need to meet the standards uh, of God's righteousness. Well, God reveals to us through this gospel message, through the message of the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, God reveals to us that although we failed in this, although we failed to meet the standard to be good enough for heaven, God provides the righteousness that we need to get into heaven, that we need to be justified and right before him. I'm sure you've heard uh, Charles's illustration. I think it's Charles who first came up with it. So. But you know the judgment... See, most people think of it as like a, a set of scales with your good deeds on one side, bad deeds on the other, and you hope your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. Well, it is a set of scales at the judgment, but it's not good deeds versus bad deeds. Rather, it's you on one side of the scales and the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, on the other. And in order to be good enough to get into heaven, in order to have fellowship with God, we need to meet the standard of Jesus Christ. Well, that is no one. And no matter how much cleaning up someone's life someone does, they'll never balance those scales. But although we failed in this, God provides the balance. God provides the righteousness that we need. And in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, Paul expounds on this to say that Although we sinned against God and are totally deserving of his wrath, God gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to suffer and die in our place and fully satisfy the wrath of God that was due to us. The penalty for the believer's sin against God, Christ paid by his blood shed for us on the cross. And not only that, not only did Christ pay for the believer's sin, but the obedient record of Jesus Christ. And Paul says more about this in chapter 4, but the obedient record for the life of Jesus Christ, in that he always did the will of his Father, the merits of Jesus Christ, if you like, the righteousness of him, that he earned for us is put in our account before God. And so then, in this gospel message, this is the good news that God puts, he puts the sinner's guilty record upon Jesus Christ. And so he is then punished in our place. And God also puts Christ's righteousness, the record of his obedient life, in the believer's account. And this comes to us, the way in which 
this salvation comes to us, Paul repeatedly tells us here, is by faith. By simply believing and trusting what God has said he has done for you in this gospel message. So then, the once guilty sinner who faced the wrath and punishment of God from the moment he or she has faith in Christ, that person now stands pardoned and justified before God. And Paul has made it very clear in these three chapters that every person, no matter what background they are from, needs this gospel message in order to be saved. Because there is only one God, and so there is only one way of salvation. You cannot approach God, you cannot get reconciled to God by any other means. In fact, all the way from Romans 1 verses 18 to Romans 3 uh, verse 20, Paul has proven that every other attempt by man to justify himself before God has failed. There is no other way to be saved than by faith in the gospel. And then in the last part of chapter 3 in verses 27 to 31, before moving on, Paul, wanting to make sure that his audience properly understood God's way of salvation, Paul throws in a few tests, if you like. Paul tells us that if you have understood it correctly, if you've understood the gospel, God's way of salvation correctly, then it will leave you with no room to boast. So test yourself. It says in Romans 3, verse 27 there, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. In God's way of salvation, there is no room to boast and say, I am saved because I did this. In God's way of salvation, there's no, there's no room to say, I am saved because I am doing this. You must remove all the eyes and replace them with Christ. Listen, if you think, I am saved because I believe. And so your trusting is in that you believe. Your hope is in something that you are doing rather than faith in what Christ has done. Or if you think I am saved because I made my decision for Jesus. And so your hope lies in something that you have done. Rather than solely lying upon the merits of what Christ has done. If your hope is built on anything less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then you do not properly understand the gospel. And you may well be lost. That all is turning faith into a work. You see, listen closely. Your reliance for acceptance with God must not be upon anything you have done. But realize that God alone saves and he is a complete savior through this work of Jesus Christ. And the second test here that Paul gives to make sure you've understood this gospel message correctly is that this way of salvation is for all people, Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew that is. You know, I don't know whether this is a problem here, but it repeatedly comes up where I come from in, in Manchester, especially but from people who have come from dispensational circles or new Christians who don't have much of a, a grasp of the Bible yet. But 
You know, every now and again, I will hear people say things like, they'll say, in this time now, people get saved by faith in what Christ has done. But then they say, in the Old Testament time period, back then people get, got saved by their ability to keep the law. But listen, if you think that anyone could get saved at any time by law-keeping, then you don't properly understand the gospel. Paul has spent a lot of time here in these three chapters quoting from the Old Testament to prove that the Jewish nation and the Jews had miserably failed in trying to justify themselves before God by keeping the law. And so people then needed the gospel in order to be saved. If you think that anyone at any time could become right with God by their own merits, if you think that someone could contribute one little bit towards their salvation, then you have not understood this gospel. I was on the streets of Manchester witnessing to uh, two Seventh-day Adventist pastors and he was saying to me, look, Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I was like, whoa. You've got to read Romans. And so then, in our text here, Paul brings up these examples of Old Testament saints of how Abraham and then David were justified before God and the reason he does this is to show us that God's way of salvation has always been this way. Not only is there one way of salvation for all people, but there has only ever been one way of salvation. By faith in the gospel, and this is for all time. Now, Paul, if you look in the opening verse of chapter 1 of this letter, he's already started to hint at this. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now notice this in verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is, in the, the Old Testament, the gospel was promised. And also, look in verse 17 again of chapter 1. For in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. Quoting the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, where it is written, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So then, Paul has, Paul has, he has made his point in these chapters that salvation is by faith alone and not of any works we do. And one of the ways in which Paul has proved this is by showing that salvation was also by faith for people of the Old Testament time period also. And look at chapter 3, verse 21 also. He says there, but now in this time after the cross, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What Christ has done to save people has been revealed. It has been realized Apart from the law, and notice this, although the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, a way of saying the Old Testament, the Old Testament bears witness to this way of salvation. 
So then, Paul is repeatedly saying here to the church in Rome and also to us, written for our sakes, remember, he's saying to them, look guys, this is not a new doctrine that I'm proclaiming to you here. This is not a new teaching, he says. I'm not proclaiming any new way of salvation here. But salvation has always been this way. In the Old Testament time, before the cross, the gospel, what God would do through Jesus Christ to save people, it was predicted back then and it was foretold of. But now in the New Testament, we have the realization of this. What God in the Old Testament promised he would one day do to save people, he has now done. And salvation has always been by faith in this. So then, the theme of of chapter 4, Paul's point is that the Old Testament does not only foretell of the gospel, but Paul proves here that this way of salvation has always been God's way of dealing with people. So then, after spelling this out, Paul now gives us these two examples with the justification of Abraham and David here. And so let's look at them in in chapter 4, verse 1, which reads, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, according to the flesh here can have, in this context, I, I think one of two meanings. It can either mean Abraham was our for, was the forefather of the Jewish nation, as in he was their physical ancestor. Or more likely, and this is a way in which Paul often uses the word flesh, and I think it much better fits with the context here. This could mean, what did Abraham gain in regards to his justification by the flesh? The flesh here meaning his works, his circumcision and so forth. The flesh here basically meaning anything he might boast in to try and recommend himself to God with. Like in Philippians 3.3, Paul says, The true circumcision has no confidence in the flesh, but glories in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on with a list there of things of the flesh he was trusting in. His circumcision, he was, uh, he'd kept the, as to the law, blameless and so forth. I think the, uh, the King James has this verse translated better. Um, it reads there, What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, comma, as pertaining to the flesh, have found? You see, the question being asked here in the context is, Was Abraham justified by anything that pertains to the flesh? The idea is, if people are justified by faith alone, if our works do not have any place in our justification, if all rites and ceremonies and circumcision, if they did not merit justification, then did Abraham not gain even any merit in regards to his justification by those things? And Paul proves there the answer is no, not one little bit. Abraham had nothing in and of himself to recommend himself to God with. And so do you realize this, that you also have nothing in and of yourself to recommend you to God with? Or are you still hopefully 
hopelessly looking for something in yourself. Because you won't find any hope there. Now, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works. If he was justified by any work he did. If he was justified before God by anything meritorious on his part. Then, verse 2 continues, he has something to boast about. Now, Paul has already said in chapter 3, verses, verse 27, that God's, in God's way of salvation, boasting is excluded. You see, the idea here, Paul's point, is Abraham had nothing to contribute towards his justification before God. Absolutely nothing. So, have you also realized this? That you have nothing to contribute towards your salvation. You have nothing to contribute towards your acceptance before God. Because otherwise, you had, we would have something to boast about. You would be able to say to God, well, I've done my part. And listen, this is a, such an important truth in a, for a believer too. Because it's so easy to slip back into this legalistic mentality. You sin, you do something wrong, and so you try and work your way back into his presence. But that's not the way. The way is just through this gospel. Verse 2 continues, but not before God. There will be no boasting in his presence. And verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the word counted here in verse 3, in the original language, it's the same word also used in verses 4, 5, and 6. In my ESV translation, at least, they have tra translated it the same way every time, which I think is very helpful. But in most translation, they use a, a different word. Uh, counted, reckoned, imputed, and so forth in, in chapters, in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6 here. But I point that out so you can see that when it says either of those in your Bibles, counted, reckoned, imputed, it's referring to the same thing in all, each of the verses. And the word basically means to impute or to reckon. The idea is to put into someone's account. Put, to putting some, someone's account something that they do not previously possess. The greatest example of this, I think, is in that of Philemon. You have on, Onesimus there, who was the runaway slave. He, he ran from his master, Philemon, and he ran into the Apostle Paul and was converted. A great place to, <laughs> place to run. It's like running to the city of refuge, isn't it? Going to Paul. <laughs> but eventually, Paul sends Onesimus back to his master, who was also a Christian, at least by, by this point. And Paul said to Philemon, uh, he, sorry, he sent him a letter saying, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Well, how much had Paul wronged Philemon? 
Paul did not owe him anything as far as we know. But there he says that if Onesimus owes you anything, charge his debt to my account. So that Paul would now owe it. Well, that is a perfect illustration of what an imputation is. And that's a perfect picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ did not owe God the Father any penalty. He had done no wrong. But he said, what they owe, charge it to my account. What they owe for their sin, charge it to my account. He made how our debt, his debt, and he paid it in full. And Paul also says in his letter to Philemon, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Philemon is to receive this once guilty runaway slave who would normally be punished at his own coming. He is to receive him as he would receive the Apostle Paul. Receive him as you would receive me. Well, that's another perfect picture of the gospel. God receives the once guilty sinner who trusts alone in his son as he would receive his perfect son. When you go to God by faith in this gospel message of what Christ has done, you go with a letter of recommendation. That any debts you owed were accounted to Christ and he's paid them and received this person as you would receive Jesus Christ. That is the promise God the Father gives. I mean, this was God, salvation is God's, God the Father's plan. And he promises to receive all who come to him through faith in his son, as his son. If, if I went to Buckingham Palace tomorrow, I would not get in. But if I went with a, recommend, a letter of recommendation from the queen that I was now adopted as a prince into the royal family, I would be escorted in. <laughs> Believers, do, do you realize this? That this is what happens through what Christ has done. When Lazarus died, what happened? Angels escorted him to heaven. Now then, verse 3 continues. What does the scripture say? Quoting the Old Testament book of Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was counted, it was imputed, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was not saved by his works or by his circumcision or by anything he did. He did not contribute one tiny bit to his salvation. But when he believed God's way of salvation, he was accounted righteous in the sight of God. Now, another thing that's important, we understand here, this used to kind of confuse me when I first read this and when I became a Christian, but this does not mean here that Abraham believed in God. It does not mean that he believed God existed and so he was justified. Nor was Abraham justified because he believed God's word to go out from his own country. But remember, remember the context here of what we're reading. What Paul is saying here is that 
Abraham was justified when he believed God's way of salvation by faith. That is by faith. Remember what our Lord said in John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And what does he mean by his day there? Well, obviously Christ's advent, his first coming, when he would bring the salvation. Abraham rejoiced to see when God would realize the fulfillment of these promises of how God would save, of the promised seed. That goes right back to Genesis 3 when man fell. What God would do in Christ, how God alone would be our savior. What was promised in the Old Testament. Now, they did not understand it back then, of course, as clearly as we do today. The prophets desired to look in on it, we are told. We get the much fuller picture now. But nevertheless, they saw enough to see that God alone would be their savior through this promised seed, through this Messiah. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So when did he see it? Well, God showed Abraham pictures of the gospel several times. One example is Abraham and Sarah in their 90s, well past childbearing age. And God promised them an heir in whom All of the nations would be blessed. In fact, in in Galatians 3.6, you can quickly turn there, keep your finger in Romans. Quoting the same text uh, from Genesis here, Galatians uh, 3.6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham declared righteous the moment he believed. Know then that it is those of faith. What does it mean? Those of faith. Those who believe this way of salvation. Who are the true sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now notice this. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Saying, in you... Shall all the nations be blessed? So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all who rely on the law, works of the law, are under a curse. You can go back to to Romans, but God also preached the gospel to Abraham in Genesis 22. When he was told to Take his son, his only son, up Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. You have so many pictures there. He places the wood on his son's back, just as God the Father placed the wood on on his son Jesus' back. And Mount Moriah, of course... Later, you read in, I think it's Second Chronicles, that Solomon's temple was built on it. And then, of course, it later became called Mount Calvary, the place where Christ was crucified. 
But Abraham was told there, lay not thine hand upon the lad as he was about to sacrifice his son. And there was a ram, that is a male lamb, caught in the thickets that was offered up instead as a substitute. Well, that's a, a perfect picture of the gospel, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ being offered up instead of us. And it was said there, back in Genesis 22, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And of course it was. Well, Abraham saw it and was glad. Another way in which God preached the gospel to Abraham, when he called him out of his own country, he was an ungodly sinner. He had nothing to recommend himself to God with. And like, you know, Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, he said, follow me. And he did. You know, when we read those things like Matthew, you know, I mean, put yourself... Back in the first century, reading that, I mean, the, those guys, wow, he's, he's calling a tax collector to follow him. The vilest of the vile. He justifies the ungodly. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He saw it and was glad. In Hebrews eleven thirteen. We are told, though, that all those who were saved in the Old Testament saw this. All those who were saved in the Old Testament saw God's way of salvation by faith in Christ. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They saw them from afar off. So then, the moment Abraham was saved, from the moment he believed, Abraham was saved from the moment he believed God's way of salvation. Whether someone was saved before the cross or after the cross, a person is saved by believing God's way of salvation, that is by faith in Christ and not by any merits, not by any contributing merits of our own. Now, Let's continue in, in verse 4 of Romans 4. Now, to the one who works. The one who in contrast to God's way is trying to earn his or her salvation. The one who is trying to recommend him or herself to God by something they do. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you work in this fashion, you are trying to make someone owe you something. That they have to pay you because you deserve it. The analogy here is, is simply that, that you do X amount of work for someone, and then you present them with a bill and say, pay up, you owe me. You say, I've done the work, now you owe me, you're in debt to me. Give me what I deserve. Well, the person who is trying to do something in order to try and merit their salvation is trying to make God their debtor. 
But then salvation, it would not be a gift. It would not be by grace. And so verse 5. God does not justify people who are trying to make him owe their salvation. But verse 5. And to the one who does not work. Glorious verse. Now. The Christian, of course, will do good works out of gratitude for what God has done. But to the one who does not work as in regards to his or her justification is the context there. The one who realizes they have nothing meritorious of their own. You know, I was once counseling someone on the phone over their salvation. He, he was, he'd heard this text. And he was trying to be saved and he says, well, I realize it's God saves people without any works. So he says, I'm trying to be really bad and I'm trying to not do anything good in order that I can come to God. Well, he's still trying to do something to merit it. <laughs> and I said, no, you've missed the point. You're already ungodly. You already have nothing to contribute. You just, just need to realize that. But to the one who realizes they have nothing meritorious of their own. Nothing in my hands I bring. Because I have nothing in myself to recommend myself to God with. But simply believes on him. Simply to the cross I cling. Who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Why? Because his faith trusts solely in the merits of Christ. The ungodly sinner who recognizes that he or she has nothing to recommend themselves to God with, but believes this gospel, God's way of salvation, they are declared, they are accounted righteous before God. Now, another thing I want to make clear in these verses here, and it's important we understand this, and this is a mistake I used to make when I first read Genesis, at least looking at the accounts of Abraham's faith, but faith is not godliness. You see, when people think of Abraham's faith today, they tend tend to think in terms of Abraham's obedience. That Abraham acted upon what God said. Now that is a result of faith, of course, but it's not faith. That is a a future result of faith. But godliness is not faith. Because it says here that God justifies the ungodly, meaning Abraham, who is the example. Abraham was an ungodly sinner who believed as the context. Paul is showing us here how he was justified in order to tell us how all people can be justified. And remember, justification, it's a forensic, that means uh, used in the courts of law. It's a legal declaration that happens outside of oneself by the verdict of the judge. God the judge has said it, that settles it. If you think in a human court, you're on trial. The judge declares you not guilty. Well, doesn't matter what other people say. Doesn't matter what accusers say. If the judge has said it, that's the end of the matter. 
Well, this is salvation. You may have Satan tempting you to despair. But God has declared it. And that settles it for those who believe in him. Justification is entirely an act on God's part, apart from any of my own actions. This doesn't make, if you're a believer, if you're regenerate, this doesn't make you want to go on and sin. But it makes you feel secure and stand closer to, to Christ. I love um, uh, an example that Martin Lloyd-Jones once gave. And that was, he, he said there was a, a road, if you like, and a, a great big fence. And on one side was the, the kingdom of the devil and the world. On the other side was the kingdom of God. Well, you was in the kingdom of the devil and of the world. But at your conversion, believer, you was translated into the kingdom, into the kingdom of God. And he says, the devil can never come over that barrier and take you back. But what he can do, he can shout at you from the other side. He can shout temptations to sin and and terrify you. He gave another wonderful example close to that, which he said, uh, uh, imagine a, a little boy who's being bullied. He's terrified of the bully. But one day he's walking, the little boy is walking, holding his father's hand. But he's, his father's not scared of the bully. The bully's scared of his father. But nevertheless, the little boy, he, holding his father's hand, he sees the bully uh, and he, he's struck, struck with fear. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, well, he need not be because he's with his father. Well, that's the position of the Christian. You know, securing Christ. And the more we realize this, the, the, more, the more closer we'll walk with him. The more bolder. The more we realize that salvation is all of Jesus Christ and not of any part of our own, the more bolder we will be for him. So then, what about you? Have you seen this? Abraham rejoiced to see his day and he saw it and was glad. All of the Old Testament saints, they saw it from a distance and died in faith. They saw it from afar off. Paul saw it. He was on the Damascus road. He was an ungodly sinner. Paul was a a self-righteous religious man persecuting the church. And God justified the ungodly Paul there and then. He cried, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he saw, I thank the Lord, through Jesus Christ and was glad. The dying thief saw it. And he rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. William Cowper saw it. And said, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Charles Wesley saw it and said, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Plenteous grace in thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. John Newton saw it. Amazing grace, 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Fanny Crosby, she was physically blind, but she saw it. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Charity Bancroft saw it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. No other reason. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Have you like Abraham, seen this day and been glad? Have you seen God's way of salvation? That it's all through what Jesus Christ has done. Entirely in action on his part. Have you seen that God justifies the ungodly? Apart from any contributing merit of our own. And one more thing here. Let us consider From the context here, what is meant by ungodly? Because someone can admit themselves to be ungodly. A person can believe they are a sinner, of course, but still think they can do some little thing to help merit their salvation. Well, if that's you, then you've not seen it. You see, the context of ungodly here is the one who realizes that he or she has no good works to offer. This is the person who realized he cannot present an account to God. Because all he or she has done has failed. And will continue to do so if they try to recommend themselves to God by things they do. Ungodly here is realizing that you have nothing, that a person has nothing in themselves to recommend themselves to God with. You see, whilst you are thinking, if I just get good enough... Or if I just get rid of this sin, then I can come to Christ and be saved. While someone is thinking like that, then they will not be saved. It does not say here that God makes you righteous, or you make yourself righteous, and then he will justify you. Sanctification is promised in the gospel, but those things are future. He says here, he justifies you whilst you are still ungodly. So you go to him as an ungodly sinner, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And a Christian, a Christian is someone who realizes this truth, this wonderful truth. And so does not, a Christian is someone who does not attempt to do anything to justify him or herself. Now, he will repent and go on to do good works, Out of gratitude, as I said. But he or she does not try to merit their justification, their acceptance. You see, if someone thinks, you know, if only I could be a bit more broken, then I could be saved. 
Or if someone thinks, if only I could work up more tears, then I could recommend myself to God. But you can cry until Christmas. You won't find respite there. And you'll just irritate everyone else. (laughs) We had someone in our church who literally did that. But eventually, he saw it. Have you seen this day? Have you seen God's way of salvation? You see, if you say, yep, I've seen it, great, I understand it, but now I have to go and do my bit in order to keep myself saved, you've not seen it. There shouldn't be any buts in there. There shouldn't be any Christ plus in there. If you believe this gospel, then went home, lived as old as Methuselah, became a monk, prayed, read your Bible 10 hours a day, do good works, never lust again, never be angry again, you would not add one bit to your justification. On your deathbed, you'll have nothing to recommend yourself to God with apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You do not become more justified by performance. I once listened uh, to, it was, it was a clip of a charismatic preacher, and he told this uh, New Testament, it was kind of one of those colorful charismatic sermons with kind of no scripture, but colorful illustrations. And he, was, he gave this kind of, uh, it was on martyrs, and he was saying that when you're in uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb, And you sat across the table and you'll say to someone, you know, how did you get here? And the other person will say, well, you know, I was so, I was so scared. You know, I was in Rome and, and, um, they fed my daddy to the lions and they wanted me to deny my faith, but I would not deny Christ. And that's how I got here. And then he said, and then he, she looks at you and says, how did you get here? Well, you better have a story, he said. Well, my story is, well, I got here by Jesus' blood and righteousness. Solely on him. From the moment Abraham believed God's way of salvation, that he had nothing to recommend himself to God with, and that salvation is entirely an act on God's part, which, let me add, is offered to you this day as you hear this. From the moment he believed that, good news, that moment a pardon received. He was justified, he was reckoned righteous in the sight of God. And if you will realize this too, that from the moment you do, God will pardon you forever. He will reckon you righteous. God never will, will never charge you with your sins again. He will give you the righteousness of his son. And you cannot improve upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that he gives you. It's another thing I sometimes hear a lot about. About believers going to their judgment seat in a condemned state. Maybe they need to read Romans 8.1 a little more. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has already been condemned in our place. And so, just to finish, 
Again, just a reminder to believers here, don't slip back into a performance mentality. Be reminding yourself of this gospel, of this good news. Every day. That you are entirely accepted by God, not because of anything you do, but solely on the merits of Jesus Christ. The devil will come to you and he'll say, how often does God forgive you? Seven times like Peter? Say no, 70 times seven. He just keeps on because, of course, you will grow in holiness as a believer Five steps forwards, two steps back, three steps forward, two, and so forth. But gradually. But you won't be perfect in this life. But the devil t- will tell you. You know, you can stand on a promise. I remember a few years ago, he, he was getting me with this for a while. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God said, you've said that, uh, the devil said, you've said that too many times now. But he changes not. He is the, the I am. So let's preach the gospel to ourselves. I'm reading a, a little book. I say I'm reading it. It's just something that uh, you may or may not have heard of it. The Gospel Primer by um, Milton Vincent. I was recommended it at Louisville. It's just a little book to kind of have just with a paragraph or so to read alongside your Bible to remind remind yourself of a gospel truth to think on each day. I find it very helpful. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reminder of these truths here. I thank you for your wonderful gospel that we are right before you apart from anything we have done on our doing. And I pray you would use this message, this truth to build up your church here, to walk closer to you, to trust you more, help us all. Give us a strong confidence before your throne through this truth. And I pray for anyone who walked in here lacking assurance or as an whether saved or whether lost and an ungodly sinner, no matter what state they came in. I pray that by your spirit, you would apply these truths as the balm of Gilead to their heart. That you would help them to see this day of salvation, the accepted time in which they can come to you on the basis of Christ alone and be accepted of God forever. Like the prodigal, the unworthy prodigal returning to his father and to see you run racing to them and embrace them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.